thank you for, uh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this church that we get to be here and be a part of, and uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. You sent Jesus, your son, who, who died for us, who rose again, who sits as, as, as the head of the church, Lord. And how amazing that you have sent your spirit to be in us, to work in us, that, that you choose that, that as we are here as a part of the church, God, that you say, I want to work through you. I want to speak through you. I want, I want to feed the hungry through you. I want to change lives. And um, it is by God's power that all this happens. But what a joy that he chooses to use us. Not only does he save us, but he chooses to use us. Oh, God, we praise you. We pray that we would be humbly before your word today, that it would be only your word that we hear, God. Anything that is not of you, that we would not hear, that it would not be said, or that it would be forgotten, Lord, but that it would be your word today. Be with us, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm, I'm excited today because I get to... Uh, <coughs> I get to kind of transition us into a new series. Um, so, so we got to spend so much of last year going through the book of Mark. We did a Christmas series, and we're going to be kicking off um, this year going through the book of Daniel, which is awesome. The book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's one of the, the prophecy books. There's a lot in it. If, if you've read Daniel, there's probably moments where you're like, I totally know what's going on here. There's maybe other moments where you're like, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, but it is just an amazing piece of the Word of God. And before we, we jump in, as we go through the first chapter today, I want to give a little bit of an introduction. One, because there's some big names that can kind of fly over our heads, especially on the first of the year, and some of you maybe even stayed up till midnight last night, and um, some of you maybe did 9 o'clock. Who knows? Um, I went with, like, Pacific Mountain Time, I think is what it was, and I'm, ah, I'm done. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, we'll, we'll, we'll prep ourselves as we go in a little bit today. So um, the story is, is, is about four um, different guys, and, and one primarily Daniel, but, but four. Um, and, and what is important to recognize is, is these guys, these young men, um, and, and we don't know exactly what their age was as young men. Most scholars think they're probably were teenagers, maybe, maybe in their early 20s. Um, but these young men who lived in Jerusalem, who were um, of, of, of a royal family or maybe noble birth, um, they are essentially kidnapped. Essentially, there's a king from a place called Babylon, and he comes, he attacks Jerusalem, and he takes a bunch of people with him. And, and not like the whole, like, hey, I want to bring you over here, and it's going to be great. Um, they're, they're, they're essentially kidnapped. And, and where they're taken to in Babylon is, is a city which at the time was kind of the political and cultural hub of Mesopotamia. Um, but that, th those politics, that culture, that, um, that center of, of so that society there was not a society that, that knew or loved God. It was a society of false gods, a society where uh, roles like being a magician or, or being um, a, a dream reader or, or other things were, were, were really highly respected. And, and, and they spent a lot of attention on astrology. And, and some of it also was, you know, math as well, which, which uh, there's, there, there's so much there. But, but a lot of it was, were things that, that for these Jewish kids was not only foreign, but, but 
potentially even forbidden, forbidden to practice and, and, and just not a part of where they were at. So I, I want to keep that in mind that as we go through today's story, these aren't guys who were, went off to college in Babylon and they called their parents well, every once in a while. Um, these were four young men who were taken from their home and forced to live and integrate into somewhere they didn't want to be. So let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles. Um, and, and as we do that, too, as, as much as the story is about four guys, um, let's remember that the word of God more than anything is about God. Right? It's about God. So um, Daniel chapter 1, the first four verses, uh, say, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah. Okay, and Judah, I don't know, pausing already. Judah is kind of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. So that's where these, these guys are from. King Jeho, uh, Jehoiakim is the king there. And, and in the third year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Can we all say Nebuchadnezzar? Can we just get it out of the... Nebuchadnezzar. Whew! It's a, it's a big one. It's a good one. Um, of Babylon. He comes to Jerusalem to lay siege to, siege to it. He attacks it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Vessels uh, being just some of the objects that were, were in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in his treasury of his God. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Um, eunuchs had uh, unique physical features that, that uh, they weren't born with, um, but, but also <laughs> um, they, they were, were sort of, um, they, they were influential. They, 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 they filled a lot of the duties that maybe a king would have of kind of, hey, we want to move this political thing forward, or hey, we want to have you sort of be an advisor, things like that. They, they played a key role uh, for the king. And so the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family from the, and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. So as I mentioned before, our story in Daniel starts off with an attack by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon on Jerusalem. And remember that Babylon at the time was a political and cultural center of the Mesopotamian region and was, was very different than Jerusalem. And this is probably the last place that anyone faithful to God would want to live, let alone be stolen to and essentially held prisoner for the rest of their lives. And so this group of men we see are taken from their homeland and they're being forced to, to live in Babylon, but also to be integrated into this new foreign and, and honestly pagan society. And in the first few verses, it sets the stage for what our story is going to follow. They lost their home, the place where they know who they are, how they're to be, who, who their family is, what their role in society is. And they're ripped to a new place with new expectations, a new king, new rules. We can assume, based on what we read, they probably never saw their family again. But the book of Daniel is, 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 although going to focus on what happens to these four men, and we're going to see, um, you know, especially one of them as well, we're going to see the wild things that happen. We're going to see how God works in their lives, the pain and success. Um, but, but there's something more that this book is going to be about. All, all of it, while living in this place, they're, they're living out their faith in a place of uncertainty in their lives. But, but there's more to the story than just what happens to them. And, and I think before we get into it, I think we can, can maybe relate a little bit to these guys. 
yes, we, we, we don't live in Babylon. We, we uh, hopefully have not been ripped from your home or taken hostage to a foreign land. Uh, but like these guys, we live in a place that, that oftentimes doesn't line up with what we value. It oftentimes doesn't line up with, with what, what we believe is right and wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't say, oh, your God is great. It doesn't take long to look around and see that we live in a world that, that not only feels foreign, but that's kind of falling apart. That, that is lacking the things of God. And, and whether you see it when you're watching the news, whether you see it on Twitter or, or Facebook, whether it's just sitting down coffee with a friend, maybe you go to the mall and you, and you see some of the things that are for sale in the stores. Whatever it is, it's, it's not hard for us to kind of recognize that, man, we live in a world that is different than who we are as Christians. And you might be thinking already like, Brian, it's January 1st. I haven't broken my diet yet. I've got 14 more hours to go to the gym. And you're not being very optimistic. I know, I know. I'm with you. I got my new planner. I don't start filling it out. I'm writing my goals down. Like I get you. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic about this year too. Okay. We survived 2020 and then we survived 2021 and now we survived 2022. So I know what 2023 is going to be the year, but, but, but whether this year is amazing or whether this year makes 2022 look like a cakewalk, we have to anchor. I, I know for me, I, at least I have to anchor my life on something that is at the root of this book. A fact that is found throughout the book of Daniel that, that was crucial to the hope of these four men. Because we're going to learn that they, 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 they are much more hopeful than, than I probably could have been in this place. And the thing that makes it so they can have the same hope is their trust in God even in the face of uncertainty. And we already read an example of why they can trust in God in these first few verses. We might not have caught it, but we're going to go back, okay? It says, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. But how does Nebuchadnezzar succeed? By his own power? By his own strategy? No. In verse 2 we read, the Lord handed. In the, the English Standard Version of the Bible it says, the Lord gave. As you see, in the first two verses, the writer is already pointing to what makes everything in this book possible. What brings hope to the horrible situation of the four guys that we're going to meet today. What gives hope to us as we live in this broken, fallen, messy place called America, called the world, called Washington, wherever it is. Wherever you think that mess is contained in, there's a reason for hope. That God is in control. That is our hope, that God is in control. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar didn't win because he attacked Jerusalem and was just so powerful or, or so strategic that God was just like, oh, shoot, finally somebody figured out the, the one thing that I forgot. You know, that, that tiny little hole at the, the top of the Death Star, you know, and they're like, oh, my goodness, like, how did they shoot into it? Like, Jerusalem didn't have one of those. God's grip didn't slip, and he didn't go, oh, shoot, I forgot about the weak. No. Nebuchadnezzar only was able to succeed because God allowed this to happen. So whether it's 2020, whether it's the best year of your life, God is not any less in control than he was when he created the earth. God is in control in all of life, everything. And as we go through all the scripture, we see more and more that it is a story about a God who interacts with his people, a God 
who, who wants to come and to be known by his people, to, to, for them to know him, that they'll know him through the obedience of his word, and that even in the midst of the craziness, the mess, and the brokenness, that he, he wants to draw near to us. So before we can dig into the story and before we can, we can kind of start to, to look at our life and, and see the, the example that there plays, it's important that we recognize that this story is pointing to God to a God that is in control of all of this. But I know for me, that's easy to forget. I don't wake up every morning and be like, God's in control. <laughs> the chaos is happening. Things are burning down around me, and I'm just like, God's in control. Like, I, I, I wish that, that I could be that strong in my faith and confidence, but I'm not. I live in a broken world. And the world that, where, where, where evil would love for me to look around and, and, and be like, how could, how could God be in control while this is happening? That's what the evil of this world would love for me to think. So my prayer for us, as we go through this book over these next few weeks, next few, few months actually, my prayer is that we would see how in the face of uncertainty, we can have faith in our God because He is working all things for His good. That when we face trials, temptations, that when we give in to those temptations, that knowing that we can know that our God is mighty and He is in control, and he can bring us comfort, and he will bring us strength. Because that God who made all things and holds all things together is the same God that sent his son to die for your sins. It's the same God who says, by his son you are forgiven. And that when you are saved, I will send my spirit. He will be in you. He will not let you go, and nothing can take you from him. Nothing. I, I, I think these roots, these foundational pieces of, of, of what we believe about God are, are really important to know. It's important to know the Word of God and to pray about the Word of God and pray through it, because here's the deal. Not everything in life is simple. It's not all just, oh, that makes sense. I know what to do here. We need to be able to know well these truths, because then we can better understand and apply them in our lives. Now, some things in life are simple, okay? Some of you have kids, or, or maybe were a kid at some point, and, and you know that some things are just simple. Um, one thing that's simple in my home is some of the games my kids play. Um, one of their favorite games is Red Light, Green Light. Has anyone ever played Red Light, Green Light? Does anyone not know? I'll explain the rules. Okay, I'll I'm going to take sidebar, explain the rules. It's a race, and there's one person who's standing at one side, and they say Red Light, Green Light. If it's red, you don't run. If it's green, you run. First person to get to them wins. You guys ready? We're all going to play now. We're going to get there, Marcel. Because here's the deal. The game is straightforward, but then there's people like Marcel. And they want this yellow, the yellow light. They want the yellow light. Oh, but can we be honest? What is the yellow light? Like, is it, is it move slowly? Is the yellow light move cautiously? Is it move quietly? When my kids play, side note, they play in the kitchen, which is just such a blessing when my wife and I are making dinner that they're playing in the kitchen. But they're playing in the kitchen, and, and one of them will call yellow light. And I know what the two older kids are going to do. They're going to be like, yellow light. But Porter, who's six years old, when he hears yellow light, he's like, oh, just walk quieter real fast. I'm not running. Oh, it's yellow light. I don't know what yellow light means, okay? And as, as funny and silly as that is, man, I, I, if, if I can be a realist, life sort of feels like there's a lot of yellow light moments where I don't, is this a green light moment? Is this a red light moment? Oh, no, but it's a yellow light moment. 
I don't know if it's fast or slow or quiet or whatever it means. I wish there were more parts of my life that were just two options. And with Scripture, some of it's really clear. Some of it's like red light, green light, right? You go to the Ten Commandments, and it's like, do not murder. That one's pretty easy. Oh, there's a guy. Should I kill? Nope. Bible says don't murder. Okay? Don't commit adultery. Oh, you know what? The, uh, that pretty lady over there? Nope. Don't commit adultery. Okay? Just don't do it. But, 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 but life isn't as simple as, as, as all those commands. Yeah, there are some moments where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to do that thing. But what about the yellow light moments? What about the moments where, where what, what is right and wrong aren't so clear? Or, or maybe even worse, maybe it's not about right and wrong. Maybe it's about just like, God, which one of these do you want me to do? I, I think there's a couple examples today that, that I've been thinking about of, of yellow light moments, we'll call them. Um, and one of them is parenting. Uh, parenting is full of moments where, where yeah, there's some cl clear right and wrongs. Usually, you know, it's your kid who's doing the right or the wrong. Maybe it's you. But, but what do you do? What, what do you do when, when you find out that maybe your kid did something that, that they've never done before, that you're just like, how could they have? What do we do? How do we, how do we, how do we parent them in those situations? Or they get, they get in trouble at school and they say, well, I, I didn't do that. Okay, well, I don't, okay, I, I, I hope you're not lying, or I hope this, I don't, I don't know what to do. What if, what if you find out that, that maybe your teenager is, is experimenting with things at school, and you're like, oh my goodness, like, I, I don't know what to do, how do I help them? Or maybe, maybe they're just deciding, um, which university am I going to go to? Am I going to get a job after college, or, or, or am I going to go for, for a Ph.D.? Maybe it's, it's not a right, or maybe it's just like, I don't, which one does God want for me? What about politics? Man, politics is somewhere I would love for it to just be really clear, like, that's the red light, that's the green light. But, but, but even politics, it, 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 there's, it, there's not always a clear biblical answer. Sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. Aside from a few select things, there's a lot of stuff that, that just takes a lot more prayerful conviction and discernment, whether it's for an issue or for a candidate. If we look at the Bible in comparison to most political questions, initiatives, policies, you'll see that the Bible has not been written to be your guide to politics. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't an issue where you're like, hey, okay, this one's easy. But, but if you've spent any time voting, any time watching any political news channel, you know, like a lot of them, you're just like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe you have a conviction, maybe you have a strong opinion or a strong argument, but, but you can't hold your Bible and be like, oh, yeah. When it comes to the specific tax measure in this county, in this place, I, I already know. It's, it's right, right here. But again, again we're, we're, we're in this spot where, like, yes, sometimes it's clear, but sometimes it's not. I think social media is a great one, too. I know for me, social media is something that can so easily be just unhealthy, just really unhealthy for me. But that's not the case for everybody. I know some people whose who social media is, is a blessing. They, they get to see family members. They get to share with family members. They, they share the gospel. And, and, and when I'm like, oh, yeah, I really struggle sometimes. I spend too much time on it. Or it just really gets me down. Or, or I just find myself going. And they're just like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Social media is so nice. And I don't know. If, you, if you're that person, like, that's great. But, but, but I'm different. But each of us, because it's not some right or wrong, there isn't a, a, a label on Facebook that just says, nope, it's all bad, no Christian should ever be on it. But I know some Christians who are like, I should never use Facebook. I should never go on Twitter. And others who are like, 
God is calling me to minister there. Or that is how I stay in connection with, with my family. It's not all this, this clear stuff. And, and if we jump back into our story in Daniel, we're going to see that um, for the four guys we're going to meet, it's, it's not all easy and clear stuff as well either. So in Daniel, when we go to verse 4, it says he, and he referring to the, the king's chief eunuch, was to teach them, and again, them is, 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 is all these boys that, that have been taken from, um, these young men that have been taken from Jerusalem. He's going to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names, new names, not, they, they were clearly already named. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So we see here there's, there's three challenges they face, and we know that they face more than three challenges in those first three years. But they face three challenges. Three, three things where, where they were thrown into, to, for them, what was probably a hostile culture towards who they were as, as, as Jewish men, as followers of God, just the same as us. So the first challenge, the first, the first thing that kind of flew in the face of, of their life was they needed to learn the Chaldean language and literature. And this was not only a matter of learning the language or reading some books. Rather, it meant that they would become experts on the subjects of this new culture. They would have to become experts on a culture that, that worshipped false, false gods, that practiced magic, that interpreted dreams, that, that, that did things in, about conversations with the dead that, that, that were, were clearly forbidden for them before, and many other things. Some of it, yeah, the, Babylon, they had to learn math, which, let's get real, if you didn't really spend much time in math, that was maybe some persecution there too. <laughs> but they had to learn astrology. They, they had to learn all this. Some of the things were just things like math that they hadn't learned back home that were maybe just tough and difficult. But some of them, and maybe in many of the cases, it were things that were forbidden and were full-on just wrong in the eyes of the faith. The second kind of challenge or change is, is, is that they were given a new diet of royal food and wine. And although we don't know the specifics of this food, there's a chance that some of these foods may have been forbidden for them. Or maybe they were just foreign and uncomfortable. These guys are still teenagers, so maybe they're just like, oh, broccoli, I don't know what that is. I don't want it. Who knows? Well, the third one is their names were changed. And in 2021, jumping out of the story real quick, I know this story doesn't actually talk about 2021, but in 2021, Jesse and I, my wife, had a, had a beautiful son, and we named him Heath. Little, little redhead who runs around here, and thankfully we don't hear him screaming right now. And... Uh, I'm, I'm the one that came up with the name Heath. I didn't make up the name. I've, I've heard it before. And I would love to tell you the, the epic backstory of the life events and the meaning of that name. But uh, the truth is, um, there was just a professional skateboarder that I really liked in the early times of my life, and his name was Heath. And I thought it was a cool name, and I suggested it to Jessie, and she loved the name. And once she was sold on it, I later told her where I got the name from. Um, but this year for Christmas, Jessie went and, and she learned the meanings of all our kids' names. And because and, um, none of our kids were really named with, you know, this, this huge, hey, we know the meaning, this is what we have in mind. 
But it was really fun. We, we, she made these little posters. She put them in a frame, and it's got what their names mean, some adjectives that associate with them. It, it's really special. It was fun for us to kind of <laughs> chuckle as we're like, wow, some of these adjectives and descriptions really match our kid, and, and we had no idea about them before, but it was cool. Now, some of you might have cringed at that story because you're like, I named all of my kids, and I had a reason I chose the name, or my name was chosen for this meaning, and, and, and I think that that's amazing. I really like that you have that. And the reason that I bring that up, if you're feeling it, then hold, hold tight to that feeling for a moment, okay? Because it, 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 if I can pull, pull a little bit from, from, from a great scholar named Tremper Longman, he, he, he talks a little bit about why the, the changing of these four guys' name was so significant. He writes, in ancient Near East, one's name often contained the name of one's deity, one's God. And it was integrally connected to that person's identity. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. That's cool. And, and if you had been named with your name being God is my judge, that's connected to the God that you love, that you have faith in, that's, that's cool. And now his name has been changed to Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. Which the interpretation is either may a God protect his life or, or a goddess protect the king. We, we, we don't really know. Azariah, whose name meant Yah is my help, God is my help, his name became Abednego, which is thought to, to enter to servant of Naboo. Which Naboo was not a planet. Naboo was just a false god. So his name was changed to the servant of false god I don't believe in, basically. Hananiah's name, Yah has been gracious, God has been gracious, and Mishael, who is what God is. Those are such cool meanings, and their names were changed to Shadrach and Meshach. We don't even know what Shadrach and Meshach mean. Their names full of meaning and connection to their God were changed to names not only devoid of meaning from their culture, but in most cases for them, a name that was honoring or pointing to a false God of Babylon. So I don't know about you, but as I think about these three things that happened to them, some of them would be tough for me to handle. I like my name, but if my name had that much meaning, I would really like my name. In those moments... When I'm there, when, I, when I'm like, oh my gosh, someone is doing that to me, someone is changing my name, no one has, but if I was there, you want to know what I kind of feel like? I feel a little bit like that David versus Goliath. I'm like, oh man, oh, something is big and against me, and, and, and what can I do? I don't know, but God help me, I'm going to do something. Uh, it, it feels like all I can do is, is put that rock in my sling and, and prepare to fight back. Because when you're taken into a new culture, you're told to learn all the new ways, the new languages, the new things. When it is clear that you are being separated from your home and who you are and who you, you, your God is, when you're told what you need to eat and drink and what your new name will be and what you'll be known as, man, that, that, that sounds tough. And so today I, I, I want to look at, at the, what they did in response. And we're going to learn that one of them becomes a really prominent character in this story and, and, and has some conviction about these three things that happened. But it wasn't the one that, that, that I might have chosen as, as the three things to resist. We read in Daniel, again, it says, Daniel determined not that he would not let them change his name, not that he would say, I don't want to learn this stuff, that's, that's not good, no. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. 
Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your face looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. Okay? Because if all they ate was vegetables, let's get real, they'd, yeah, they'd probably lose some weight. Or at least they wouldn't be uh, of the same physical structure as those who were eating the royal food and the meat and all those things, right? So Daniel said to the guard whom the eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. So the guard, he agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine, and they were to drink, they were to drink, and he just gave them vegetables. So as we see here, Daniel's conviction to challenge, the thing he felt convicted to, to resist of all these things that were forced on him is not that his name had been connected to God and was now changed. Not that he would avoid learning all these things, no. His conviction was to not eat the menu the king had chosen for him. And for exactly what reason he rejects it, we, we, we don't know. Um, it, it could be that it wasn't was kosher, so there, there, there were maybe forbidden foods um, for the Jewish culture. But we know that that can't be all of it because wine was not forbidden. It, and we know that it, it, he didn't do it to openly defy the king. Right? It wasn't like a hunger strike, and he was just like, yo, boy, I'm not eating any of this. Because it was private. The only person who knew was the guard. This was between the guard and these guys and God. And what about the fact that he asked permission? In the midst of being forced to do all these things, he doesn't say, hey, feed me this. I'm not going to eat. He says, hey, can, can, can we talk about this, this food? He didn't, he didn't fight back with aggression. He, he asked the next man in charge after he was then initially said no by the eunuch and says, hey, could you do this for me? Could you maybe just swap this food out for me? And we see by, by, by God's power that that happened. But, but, but friends, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with this. I have a hard time thinking that if, if, if I was in that situation, that that's how I would act. And maybe I've watched too many action movies or, or timepiece dramas. But when I face adversity, when, when persecution comes, when there, when there is a, a threat to my family, to, to my culture, to, to my beliefs, I am ready to battle for my faith. I'm ready to fight against the evil of this world. I mean, I'm ready to do whatever Christ strengthens me to do. I'm ready to face whoever is dishonoring God and his people. I'm, I'm ready to go. But church... When we read the Old Testament, when we see the examples of faith, when we see God and his people, when we continue through the New Testament and we, we learn stories of our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and how they lived and what they told us to do, who they are and how they were, the ways that they trusted God, the ways that God used them. I've learned over the years that, 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 that it's important for me to remember that, that the that, that, that the Bible is not about me. I, I am not a character in the Bible. I, 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 and bear with me, in the context of I'm not Daniel. I'm not Jeremiah. Yes, I'm talked about in the Bible as a child of God, but, but when I read the Bible, I, I, it's important for me to remember that, that when I'm flipping through it, and I'm like, oh, he's cool. I'm not him. I'm me. And sometimes it's pretty easy. I, I, you read about some characters in the Bible, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not that guy. I don't want to be that guy. But I'm going to be honest, there's one character in the Bible who I 
more often than I should find myself associating myself with, thinking, I'm, yeah, I'm that guy in this situation. I can't help but sometimes think of myself as David, and, and, and more specifically as David versus Goliath. Things are happening in my life, and I'm just, I'm David right now, and there's a look at this Goliath ahead of me. So I should get ready to fight back. I should get ready to get my sling in my hand. The enemy is in front of me. I'm facing uncertainty. I'm facing fear. I'm facing tough times. And, and, and I'm, this must be my David and Goliath moment. I need to be ready to fight. And, and, and I'll be honest, even sometimes I fantasize as if I'm David walking out onto the battlefield. Because woe is me as I face, face Goliath, but, but, but I trust God, so therefore I'm going to turn in. I, something crazy is going to happen. I'm going to beat something way bigger than me. But then I got to ask myself when I read the rest of Scripture, where in the Bible are we told to fight? Yeah, we're, we're called to speak boldly. There, there is no doubt that we are going to face trials and persecution and, and that we're going to be called to stand up for the gospel, maybe even die for it. But in all the Scripture and all the things we're told, I, there's not really many, if any, times where we're instructed to fight the way that David fought Goliath. And I'm not saying there's never a fight to be fought. You might be thinking about, Brian, I could tell you a time in my life. I'm, I'm not saying that, that there's never a time where God might call us to have a David versus Goliath type moment. Or a time where, 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 where God is going to bring us and say, you're going to have to do something crazy. You're going to have to, to, to take up your sword here. But the more time I spend reading my Bible and looking at how Jesus calls me to be, who Jesus calls me to be, when I see the things that God loves, the more that I realize who God is like, the more that I realize that he is much more likely to call me to my knees to humbly surrender to him than he's going to call me to pick up my sword and fight. Despite how, how, how we feel in, in the face of uncertainty, God doesn't need us to act like David versus Goliath for him to work. We see in this book in the Bible, God being in complete control. And how are these people acting? They're acting humbly, they're acting patiently, they're, they're being careful, they're being even respectful of others, even respectful of the non-believers who are literally the guard of them as a prisoner. And they can do that with confidence because God is in control. The rebellion, the resistance we see in Daniel is very different than the type of resistance that honestly I, I fantasize about. When, when I see uncertainty, in my mind, I want to do a spectacular thing. And I'm not saying that God would, would, would never call me to do something spectacular. But, but I want to be a warrior of my faith. I want to win the battles. I want to strike down evil every time I see it. I want to be like the hero in the action movie, right? I don't know whether, whether the action movie you have in mind is, is John Wick or, or Braveheart or, or James Bond, but, but I could be any of those guys. When evil's in my life, I'm swinging, I'm shooting, I'm saying snappy one-liners. People are just humbled by my amazing argument. I am bringing unbelievers to repentance in one sentence, and they are just left in my wake. I don't even have to build a relationship with them. I just, God's in control. I did the work. But let's be honest, does that really sound like a guy who's trusting that God is in control? Or does it sound like a guy who, who maybe is actually kind of scared that, that God might say, hey, why don't you talk to them? Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you invest in this a little bit? Because maybe sometimes we need to put down our weapon and trust that God really is in control. 
He doesn't need us to fight for his will to be done. Okay? Whether our weapon is our words, our actions, our opinions. Looking at much of scripture, we see him working when his people aren't fighting. When they're outnumbered. When they're praying. When they're loving others. When, when they're feeding the needy and taking, taking care of the widows. We see just days before Jesus died on the cross and did the amazing work what was he doing with his enemies? Well, he was washing Judas's feet. Every time we face uncertainty, persecution, tough times, evil, maybe it isn't always David and Goliath. Next time I feel angry, next time I feel enraged, next time I, I feel a need to resistance, rather than patience and care, what if I consider that God doesn't want me to fight? And yes, Friends, I, I, he calls us to faithful obedience. And God may call you to something that, that, that you could never expect. But maybe it isn't always do or die. Maybe the moments of faithfully following Jesus look less like rage and rebellion against our broken culture and against those who are, who are breaking it. And maybe it looks more like quiet, patient, loving approach where you become more invested in the lives of those who you are feeling convicted about rather than just trying to, to, to give the one-liner, the single swing, and then we're gone. Maybe instead of being guarded and, and aggressive, we're called to be vulnerable, listening before we speak, considering the fears of others. Maybe we aren't always supposed to be bulls in a, in a china shop just knocking everything down to say, I know I'm doing something, Maybe the end result of that path of that obedience looks uncertain. Not uncertain to God, for nothing's uncertain to Him, but, but maybe uncertain to us, and maybe we just need to be okay with it. Maybe sometimes we want to fight because we, 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 we are too scared to sit and say, I don't know how this is going to end. Maybe we want to say, well, at least if I fight, it's either going to end good or it's going to end with me being like, well, I bought. But maybe, maybe in our faithfulness, we are to submit to, to, to the action that, 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 that is okay with saying, God, you're in control. I don't know how this is going to end. Maybe we're to look to God and look to the one who's in control and focus on what he loves and how he is and who he is, what he says about himself and how he treated you when you were lost, when you were so much more a part of this hostile culture. How did he treat you then? When you were caught in your sin, how did he treat you? I know he didn't treat you angrily. He wasn't rageful, but he was graceful. What if sometimes God cares more that you are kind to someone rather than you prove to them that you were right. See, th th this isn't easy, though. The end result is it's not always certain. It's not red light, green light. It's not, oh, do this, don't do that. There are so many scenarios and possibilities that we're going to face in life, and, and many of the examples in Scripture are similar. They were facing uncertain circumstances, but God was always in control. And I think that we need, we need to follow an example of prayer that, that is, is throughout the Word of God. If there's, there's anything that I can recommend as we're, we're thinking about this and all this other prayer, like, well, what do I do? I, I will tell you there are two really simple green lights. We need to pray, and we need to trust in the Word of God and His goodness. And, and I'll tell you something that, that is, is always a struggle for me. I always would like to think that, oh, I didn't, that's great, but then a week later it happens again. But, but, but I realize that... that uh, a lot of the instructions to pray as well, we're not only called to pray to our God, but we are called also to pray for our enemies. We're told to pray for those who persecute us and to forgive them. Not to fight them, but to pray for them. And I think that that right there is reflective of the presence of, 
the Holy Spirit in a believer. And there's something talked about in Scripture called the fruits of the Spirit. And these are, are, are Christ-like virtues that we see within believers that blossom because of the living presence of the Holy Spirit in them. And I want to read Galatians 5, 22, 26. We have, we have the whole thing in there. Um, but, but, but it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When, when, when we feel convicted, I think that's what we should strive for. I know for me it's easy to be like, I feel convicted, so what's my passion and desire? But what if I started with Scripture and say, well, oh, I feel convicted about something. What, what are the fruits of the Spirit of someone who has the Holy Spirit in them? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. They're not fighting words. And that's not to say that, that, that you won't have a conviction and there, there won't be a, an emotion or a desire that, that, that is good and that you need to follow, but, but, but maybe if we put it through that filter... Because those aren't fighting words. Those sound more like the words of a man who died on the cross to save his people. A man who, who in his dying breaths spent some of his final words not fighting, but actually some of the last things that Jesus said was, Father, forgive them about the guys who were murdering him. Even, even, even Stephen after giving a sermon, which even in the sermon, there, there were some words that were pretty intense for those who were listening. And then when he was being killed, he, he said, Father, they don't know what they're doing. And then he died. Those were the last words. Church, we are loved by God, and he works all things for his will. And one of his many good and glorious desires that he fulfilled in sending his son is that he is making you his. He reached into the horrible darkness that was your world. He pulled you from, as you were sinful, you were broken, you were, you were undeserving of everything that he had, and he pulled you out from the depths of the sin that held you, and he sent his son to die so that when he pulled you out, you would be forgiven, you would be clean, and you would be able to be called his forever. But sometimes we've got to remember that when God looks at other those on the other side of, of, of the protest line, those who are, who are persecuting us, those who, who, who hate what we believe, those who choose sin over goodness, maybe he's reaching to them in the same way he reached to you when you were lost in your sin. Maybe he wants you to approach them the way that he approached you. So what happens to these four guys when instead of going crazy and, and pushing back and fighting what what happened was was it bad for them the end of this chapter in daniel says god gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom <clears throat> daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind at the end of the time that the king had said to present them the chief eunuch presented them to nebuchadnezzar the king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
So they began to attend the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. This is only the beginning of this story. As we see, Dan as Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's a pretty significant timeline around 600 B.C. And the challenges these guys face, they're going to get a lot crazier. There's, there's some stories that, that you probably know well, and you're like, man, it's, it gets crazier. But what we see here is that in the face of uncertainty, when they live by faith, when they, instead of fighting back, when they were humble and trusted and were patient, God took care of them. As we see here, God gave these four men knowledge, knowledge that would, would help them prosper in their new life in Babylon well, remaining faithful to their God. That would help them be positioned to share about God to others and, and knowledge that their God was in control. There will be uncertainty in this life. There will be trials and persecution and pain and sin. Sin that you will experience, sin that you will do. But may we never forget that in the midst of all this, God is in control. He knows what he is doing. When you trust him in this uncertainty, even though he may call you out of what the world says is prosperous, he will show you that, no, there is a better way to prosper than that. And when we face the challenges of this world, may our trust in God's control give us the courage to have a filter to pursue through the fruits of the Spirit. So that when we feel like, I need to fight, I need to do this, may, may, may we have trust in God so that we can say, okay, God, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because surrendering to God, to surrendering to the God who will bring this life and take it into eternity with Him, it's probably less about taking up our sword and more about laying down the life that we have here on earth for Him by living and sharing the gospel in love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that even though some things are uncertain, some moments are, 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 are tough to diagnose, that, that your word shows who you are and shows that we will be filled with your spirit as believers and that there is a clear characteristic of you that will flow out of us in the fruits of the spirit and that we get to know what that is, God. And Lord, our passions and our desires and our heart, especially in the face of uncertainty, will sometimes want to, to pull us in different directions, God. And we will have moments this week, Lord, where we will say, is this the moment to, to be like this? Is this the moment to be like that? And God, I pray that, that, that we would trust that you are in control. Mm -hmm. That you are in control so that if we have a moment where we say, is this, is this what God calls me to be in scripture, how he calls me to be, that we can say God is in control. And even if I don't know, even if I can't see how this will turn out all right, that we can say God is in control. We can trust mm -hmm. you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you listen to us when we pray. Mm -hmm. And we thank you that Jesus came and died for our sins so that this week when we get this wrong, or when we get it right, or next week when we make the biggest mistake of our lives, or we meet someone who just made the biggest mistake of their lives, that we would remember that his death paid the price for our sins. And the God that sent his 
his son as the God that is in control of mm -hmm. all of it. We praise you, God, and we pray all this in the name of